This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Welcome. This is the uh, 40th annual Carlos Kelly McClatchy uh, Symposium. Uh, I should mention that uh, next week we have another Carlos Kelly McClatchy event uh, one week from today about uh, uh, reporting with anonymous sources, particularly on national security, and that will be with two named defendants in a very important legal case, uh, Bob Drogan from the LA Times and Walter Pincus from the Washington Post and Kathleen Sullivan from the law school. That will be one week from today. But today, we're talking about, and that will be moderated by Professor Ann Grimes. Um, and one, but today, we are talking about covering the war in Iraq. Uh, I'm Jim Fishkin, by the way. I'm chair of the communication department. Let me first introduce our panel and then pose some questions for discussion. And uh, I think the questions for discussion will first be about covering the war and then about where the war or the conflict is going. And then the third part is we will open it up, hopefully, for a robust discussion with you in terms of um, questions from the floor, and there are two mics there. So we're honored to bring together tonight three distinguished journalists and one distinguished social scientist, and all of them have spent time on the ground in Iraq. So let me say a word just to introduce each of the panelists. Dexter Filkins was appointed a Baghdad correspondent for the New York Times in October 2003 after having served as Istanbul. Istanbul bureau chief. He received the 2005 George Polk Award for war coverage for his reports on the eight-day attack on Iraqi insurgents in Fallujah. The Polk Award jurors said his accounts of street-to-street -street fighting, quote, conveyed the hellish intensity of urban warfare, unquote. I was also struck that in 2006, the New York Observer named him Media Mensch of the Year. <laughs> saying that, That's the one I really care about. quote, yes, he was, unem quote, unembedded and unencumbered, Mr. Filkins became the byline New Yorkers most began looking for. His intelligent, understated reports from battle zones, dispatches that whisper came to define war correspondence in Iraq as it showed up on the American newsstand, unquote. Mr. Filkins is a Phi Beta Kappa graduate of the University of Miami and has a master's degree from Oxford in international relations. Ann Garrels, the NPR foreign correspondent, was the only broadcast journalist to remain in Baghdad when the war began. Among many awards, CPB gave her one name for Edward R. Murrow, another famous war correspondent, saying, quote, Ann Garrels broadcast from Baghdad in the middle of a war under terrifying conditions because it was the best way to cover the story. Her voice carried over a smuggled satellite phone as bombs fell all around was our sole live link to events in the city. She embodies Murrow's legacy, unquote. She's also covered Afghanistan, Kosovo, Chechnya, and previously worked for both NBC and ABC. She graduated from Harvard in 1972. In her book, Naked in Baghdad, she describes two different encounters uh, with gunmen who had had her in their sights. One of the issues we will later raise in the panel is the degree to which risks to personal safety are affecting the coverage, but when people are as fearless as Anne, or as Dexter, by the way, uh, maybe it doesn't affect the coverage. 
George, too. You're fearless, too, Larry. <laughs> I didn't go there. You are crazy, okay. as may be. Now, uh, George Packer is a staff writer for The New Yorker. In 2003, Packer was awarded two Overseas Press Club awards, one for his influential examination of the difficulties faced during the occupation and reconstruction of Iraq, and second, in the category of human rights for his coverage of the Civil War in Sierra Leone. And his 2001 book, Blood of the Liberals, Blood of the Liberals won the Robert F. Kennedy Award. Packer was born and raised on the Stanford campus where his parents were both Stanford faculty and we were honored to have his mother, Nancy Packer, Professor Emeritus of English, here tonight. After graduating from Yale in 1982, he served in the Peace Corps. Now, George's widely acclaimed book, The Assassin's Gate, begins with the image of a great sandstone arch at the entrance to the Green Zone. It was thought to be named after the ancient assassins who were 12th century Muslim heretics who would make murder a public spectacle. That turned out to be wrong. It was, in fact, misnamed by the Americans. But now modern assassins are appearing, almost as if they were called into being by our misunderstandings and our misnamings. And that's one of the haunting images of the book. Larry Diamond is senior fellow at the Hoover Institution here at Stanford and the founding co-editor of the Journal of Democracy. At Stanford, he's also professor of political science and sociology by courtesy, coordinator of the democracy program at the Center on Democracy Development and the Rule of Law, and many, many other things as well. Now, for several months in 2004, he was a senior advisor to the Coalition Provisional Authority in Iraq, which led to his book, Squandered Victory Occupation and the bundled, Bungled Effort to Bring Democracy to Iraq. And here is George Packer's book, Assassin's Gate, and here is Naked in Baghdad. Uh, so, <laughs> a lot of great books, some of which I think are available uh, outside. Now, Larry's book, Squandered Victory, begins with the image of an ancient ruin in Borsippa, Iraq, that looks like a twin tower and is reputed by the locals to be the ancient Tower of Babel. The book is partly about how an adventure that was initially justified by us as a response to the ruin of our twin towers may have ended up with some of the cross-cultural misunderstandings, which I think are nicely symbolized by a Tower of Babel. Now, let's turn to the initial topic of discussion. Today, May 1st, is actually the third anniversary of the day when President Bush stood on an aircraft carrier under a sign saying, Mission Accomplished. That was three years ago to the day. Yes, we can all take a deep <laughs> breath at that. Yeah. So, so given the special and increasing difficulties in reporting from Iraq, how is it possible for journalists to offer an independent news judgment about what's going on, independent from what the administration wants us to hear. More specifically, to what extent do the special and changing exigencies in Iraq, restrictions on safety, access, mobility, influence, or distort the picture of the situation that you are able to offer the American people, apart from the spin doctor uh, presentations uh, of the administration. Who would like to go first? Because we've decided we're going to have an interactive panel. 
Dexter? <laughs> well, uh, I'll just be quick. I mean, first of all, thank you all for coming. Um, it's very, very hard to report there these days in Iraq. Um, uh, just speaking for myself, um, just driving around Baghdad, I've been shot at, uh, held at gunpoint, held at knife point, attacked by crowds, had bricks thrown at me. Um, I've, my colleagues have been kidnapped, blindfolded. Um, one of my colleagues was actually blindfolded and taken out into the desert, and they, they opened the car door and said, get out and walk, in the walk out in the field out there. And somehow he made it out alive. Um, uh, but that's kind of, um, that doesn't happen every day. Um, but it's always, uh, that's always a danger when you go out. And, um, you know, we all go out, I go out every day, uh, and we, I try to talk to people, and I try to find out what's going on independently of what the Iraqi government and the American government is saying. It's just really, really hard uh, these days to do that. I just came from there. Um, and, and just say, for example, on Tuesday, I was in a refugee camp in Baghdad. Um, no incidents. It was really, really interesting. It was a bunch of Shiites who'd come in from the countryside. Uh, there, there were, there's a lot of ethnic cleansing going on outside of Baghdad. Um, and I was able, I thought, to get a pretty good, pretty good sense of what was happening. Um, that doesn't, I'm not always that lucky, but um, anyway, much, much more difficult than it used to be. Well, much the same situation. A little bit easier for me as a woman, maybe, although I may be delusional. Um, in the sense that uh, Dexter looks like a white guy with, you don't even pass for a Kurd. <laughs> um, uh, I can uh, wear an abaya and look like a black bag. Of course, Jill Carroll did that and it didn't help matters much. But it does help a little bit. I was down in Najaf, I just got back three weeks ago, I was down in Najaf for several days, I went down to Basra, uh, was able to travel, but I think as George's phrase is, um, steal it George, uh, we, we are hunted and we know we're being hunted. And it's not just us, but increasingly our Iraqi staff, it's appreciated that they too have a price on their heads, that they're valuable to us. Uh, none of us want to use our Iraqi staff as much as we have to. Uh, but the situation is such that we can't go to a lot of places because it is simply too dangerous and frankly our Iraqi staff won't go to certain places with us saying it's too dangerous for them. Uh, so we rely on them in ways that none of us have ever probably done any time in our lives, relying on others and not being our own, seeing things with our own eyes. Uh, it, it puts a terrible burden. I mean, you wake up in the morning and you you have to make a decision for yourself, but then you're asking other people to do things for you uh, that are dangerous. I happen to believe, though, that our contribution is worth it. If I didn't, I'd have long since stopped. Uh, but it's not perfect what we do. It's not what we want it to be but I think we are able to add a corrective to an otherwise delusional picture that is put out by the administration. <laughs> uh, 
that, that word delusional is a very, is a strong word. Do you want to just amplify slightly and then we'll go? <laughs> I think the audience... Do you want to amend your remarks? All right, all right. <laughs> no. I, I mean, you know, frankly, you know, first of all, there wasn't an insurgency uh, for months while we were calling it an insurgency. We were seeing it up close and personal. Uh, we were watching the car bombs happening, the, the daily... Uh, violence. <clears throat> we've, we've watched the sectarian violence grow and grow and grow. I mean, we see this, and while there are some in the administration who accuse us of, you know, not going out and living in the green zone and, and not, you know, we don't live in the green zone. We all live in the red zone. We all live in real Baghdad. It's true that we, you know, we have security. Um, I'm not comfortable talking about what those security measures are. Uh, but uh, I think we have given a pretty accurate picture of really what is going on, and I think the degree to, to which the administration has been finally forced to recognize publicly that it isn't quite as hunky-dory as, as they've uh, wished everybody to believe is, is an indication that we've been doing our jobs. Thank you. George, do you want to? There's not much to add to those descriptions, except just to say that, I mean, it's really unprecedented. There, I don't think there's, maybe with one or two exceptions, I don't think there's ever been a place where we're reporting, simply doing what journalists do as a matter of course, going out and interviewing people, finding people, talking to them in their homes, uh, going to a refugee camp, uh, is as dangerous as, as it is in Iraq. I mean, Vietnam was comparatively safe for journalists compared to Iraq. And the proof of that is that more journalists have been killed in the three years of the Iraq war than were killed in all the years of the Vietnam War. And the reason is there's no longer a recognition that we represent anything by way of, uh, of, of impartiality or are not in some way associated with one side or another. Some journalists who've been killed have been Iraqis who were killed by American forces. Um, the circumstances are always hard to sort out, but certainly if you're an Iraqi rushing toward the scene of an attack, you are in grave danger. We are at greater risk from insurgents, obviously, who don't even see us as um, being, you know, who, who don't stop to try to figure out whether we're actual journalists or our spies, soldiers, officials, whatever. We're just the enemy. Um, and so to, to run into insurgents is, is to essentially, you know, take your life in your hands. I, I'm struck by the dissatisfaction of the American public with the reporting. And it's been a kind of a, a mystery that I've been trying to figure out. Why is it that <clears throat> my colleagues here are not heroes in the eyes of the American public as they're were heroes during the reporting from Vietnam, like David Halberstam, Neil Shee, and people like that. And I think the reason is this war uh, from the beginning has been so politicized and has divided Americans so bitterly and has led to a demand by one side or the other for a certain story to come out of Iraq. And if what we report is not that story, whether it's 
a happy one or an unhappy one, whether it's a pro-American or an anti-American story. Um, people are very quick to dismiss it, to say you're biased one way or the other. There's almost a growing disbelief in the idea that we can tell the story in a way that is removed from the, the political line of one side or another. And so in the same way that in Baghdad we're endangered because no one believes that journalists are neutral, in this country our work is in some way discounted, um, not entirely because people still read and listen to the Times and NPR uh, and the New Yorker, but it has not taken in some way, it hasn't taken because the public by and large has been impatient with the story we've been telling, which is inevitably a more complicated picture than the narrative of either side in, in this war. And it strikes me every time I go and come back how hard it is to get across the, the fullness of the experience there because one runs into this impatience um, with a story that isn't um, satisfying in one direction or, or the other. And that seems like a, a relatively new phenomenon in, in our journalism and, and in our politics. Do you struggle with that as a, I mean, you have the luxury of writing uh, fairly extensive stories. So I'd imagine as in the uh, recent, your recent article about Talafar and the, you know, that, that there's not an easy punchline for either side to take away. Do you struggle with how to create a balanced and sufficiently nuanced picture or? Um, any given day in Iraq is full of contradictory impressions. It, Dexter once wrote, it's like a kaleidoscope that keeps shifting. And, and on the day of the elections on December 15th, you know, Dexter was in Adamiya, and, and suddenly, I don't want to speak for you, but suddenly people who seemed implacably hostile were going out to vote and were having kind of good things to say about going out to vote. The next day, the bombs are going off again. And yet on the same day that the bombs are going off again, um, there's a, a local council that at great risk to itself is holding a meeting. And how do you bring that unbelievably variegated picture through words, let alone images, that people can hold on to? It's very difficult. And I feel as if we're constantly up against um, the forces of oversimplification. Mm -hmm. So it's hard. Did you want to co come back on that, Dexter? Uh, no, I mean, just to, just to echo, yeah, all agreed. Yeah, it's very difficult. I just wanted to follow up on one thing I, I was, uh, that George said. I was talking to um, some students in North Carolina, and, and it turned out many of their fathers were in the military or their fiancés, uh, college students. And at the end of what I was describing, which was, basically a, you know, a, a description of all of the contradictions and how complicated it was. A, a young girl came up to me who was about 20 and said, um, if I listen to you, then I have to think that all of the people I know who've died have died in vain. And I looked at her and I said, but if we don't ask questions and learn anything, then they've died in vain. If we learn nothing from this, and, I mean, Dexter today wrote a, wrote a piece about, you know, the, the military now looking at lessons learned. I mean, there are some extraordinary young officers um, who 
know. I mean, they, you know, and, and some extraordinary commanders who, who's, who know exactly what went wrong and who are trying to fix it. The problem is it's three years in. And they're, you know, as, as George suggests in the piece he's written, you know, they may not have time to use all those lessons that have been learned because the troops may be cut back. Uh, there may not be enough of a force to do anything. So it's, it, I mean, lessons are being learned, but, and I mean, we, we steal each other's lines because we know each other too well at this point. As, well, if, um, I could, if I could the, add one. The White House doesn't have a lessons learned office. <laughs> <laughs> the military at least now does. I've had, a, I've had a, uh, a pretty interesting, I've been there for three years, I've been there since the beginning, and um, in the first couple of years that I was there, I get a lot of hate mail, I mean, every day, and that's okay. I don't mind as long as they read the story all the way to the bottom. And, and, um, uh, and the first couple of years, uh, most of the hate mail came from the right. Um, you're getting American soldiers killed. You don't report the good news. What about the schools that are getting painted? And what about the hospitals? Um, you're losing the war. And now, in the third year, most of my hate mail comes from the left. Um, you were wrong all along. You're keeping the war going. Um, you're a tool for the Bush administration. How come you don't report about all the civilians that the Americans are killing? And it's almost as if, um, you know, one side has kind of decided that it doesn't have the strength to kind of carry on anymore, and the other, and the other is, is kind of waking up. And um, it, it, so it, that's been an interesting experience over the last three years. Larry, uh, you're not a journalist, but you're one of the few people around who, by uh, uh, background training and experience, would be able to come to some kind of plausible independent assessment of what's going on. How would you, what do you think of the picture the American people are getting uh, of this and uh, what's your comment on your colleagues? Um, <clears throat> well, let me say a couple things. First of all, um, I did get a somewhat, I think, um, palpable sense um, of what uh, people like the three people um, from the American media on this panel tonight, each of whom individually I've read for a long time and truly, or listened to for a long time and read, uh, and really learned from and admired. I mean, it's, it's, it, we are really blessed with these three individuals to be in our presence tonight. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> Uh, and I, I, I got to know best um, another one whom I admire greatly, and if I may say, a Stanford alum, former editor of the Stanford Daily, Rajiv Chandrasekharan, and I went around a little bit with him and watched, and we're not going to say anything, my information is outdated and you're not going to get into this, but frankly then, it's probably a little different now, but compared to what we were given, in the coalition provisional authority, a pretty thin tissue of security, even to the point of a pretty thin tissue on what was called an armored car that he was driving in at the time. And I just thought, I wouldn't do this. I I'm going to just be honest. Uh, I wouldn't do it. 
I, I, we all have our thresholds of risk. Uh, <clears throat> and I have to tell you, I, I just know from what these people have been doing. Uh, I saw Ann Garrels uh, in Baghdad. I have a sense of where she was living, the vulnerability of that, holding uh, my breath a little bit when I was having dinner with her at that house uh, in March. <laughs> Uh, and it was only now at the you end tell of me. <clears throat> only at the end of the evening that they told me that the insurgents had kind of figured out where they were living. Um, but uh, you know, it occurred to me that they were really at greater personal risk than probably the majority of American servicemen and women in Iraq. And um, I would just like to say that. Um, Whenever I see someone in uniform, uh, much more now than before, believe me, after I've been back from Iraq, the first words out of my mouth are, thank you for your service. Now, they are uh, defending our country. Uh, they have volunteered. Um, but once they are in uniform, uh, having volunteered, uh, they are ordered into uh, particular arenas of service and into battle. Um, these people volunteered from the beginning and volunteer every day. There's no uh, requirement that, or penalty that keeps them from walking away from this at any time. And you've already heard, I think, nothing to the degree like it is true uh, that much of what they do is completely on their own initiative, most of it, in terms of the risk they're going to uh, undertake and the stories they're going to cover and how they're going to go about it. Um, so, you know, I think, I really, I say this, I think it's probably the single most important thing I have to say tonight. Thank you for your service because it's very valuable to American democracy. We... Um, I'll just say one other thing. Um, I do think we have been badly, and in a certain sense, I don't mean this legally, but I do mean it morally, criminally deceived by this administration. And um, <clears throat> I, I don't, this is not meant to be an applause line, it's just meant to say that I think our democracy has suffered in the last few years by the way information has been manipulated, selected, um, cut and pasted to fit the preconceptions that drove us to war. And don't, that's enough. And um, <clears throat> uh, the point is that um, I do worry about the quality of our democracy at this point. I do believe that a vigorous, uninhibited, and really to some extent dispassionate fourth estate is a vital pillar of the vigor and quality of our democracy. And, I, you know, I've depended on most of all the New York Times and the Washington Post uh, in writing the latter parts of my book and updating it after I left. But George's reporting, the reporting on NPR, <clears throat> even the, the network news to some extent. And um, I don't see the bias there that some of my colleagues at a particular institution on this campus do. <clears throat> I think that they have been... Um, uh, much more balanced than some of the political commentators. Uh, and I think the place, for example, where George is living, uh, metaphorically anyway, is not the green zone or the red zone, 
But if you read his reporting carefully, the gray zone. Very good. Uh, I don't... I, I don't know whether we should follow up immediately or later the, uh, the phrase criminally negligent. I mean, now we have delusional, criminally negligent. I mean, we have, a, we have a, an accumulation of, um, of, uh, of uh, points that uh, imply that um, uh, there are um, alternative realities, although I guess sometimes what some people in the administration have referred to as the reality-based community, sometimes that strikes back. Um, but I, I think we ought to, before going to the substance of where, we, where we're going in Iraq, we should uh, pause a little more to talk about these, um, these conditions, this robust uh, fourth estate free press is operating under some great handicaps. I mean, not to mention the handicap we're talking about next week, which is journalists may be going to jail for using confidential sources, but that applies to national security, whether Iraq or here, but now we're talking about journalists actually being shot at, uh, uh, going at great personal risk, uh, uh, having, if they want to survive, perhaps either to choose to be embedded or if not to be embedded, then uh, rely on Iraqi staff. And I think we ought to, I'd like to get a few comments about the extent to what, what the trade-offs are in these choices that are available to you to try to get a, a more informative picture to the American public. Uh, what, what, how do you wrestle with those trade-offs? How do you decide how you're going to cover it? Kind of changed. I guess the big, um, the, probably the most dangerous time for us was uh, was in late 2003 when we were all still driving around. I mean, we could go anywhere. You know, we could drive into the Sunni Triangle at 10 o'clock at night um, and stop and have tea. And uh, it was all changing very quickly, and we were all coming back to our office and saying, wow, we had another close call today. But it, it all changed in April 2004 when the, the big uprisings, if you remember when they hung the American contractors from the bridge. Ever since then, that's really kind of shut us down. And for us to leave Baghdad takes an extraordinary effort. Um, we can do it, but um, it's really, really, uh, and it, it just became clear to us then that, that, we're, that we're targets. And if you take, for example, I, I work for the New York Times, and we have two houses uh, in a neighborhood in Baghdad. Um, we have uh, like a 12-foot cement blast walls around them topped with barbed wire. Um, we have about 35 armed guards. Um, we have checkpoints. We have searchlights. We have machine guns. Um, we're, uh, yeah, I mean, we're re we have, you know, I mean, it's practically militia on Iran. Um, um, but that's, um, you know, just not terribly long ago, just a few months ago, a cement mixer full of TNT was driven into the lobby of a hotel that's about 300 meters from, from our place. And, you know, I'd, I'd never been 300 meters from a cement mixer full of TNT. And it blew out. I think we counted 309 window panes in our, in our house that were blown out. And we had a car radiator land inside of our house. And part of our house was destroyed. Um, so it was a pretty festive night. But that, but, 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 um, that's kind of what we have to deal with. And so, and I'll just give you a quick example. And, and this is where we fail, I think. Um, we're not covering the whole story. We're not. I mean, there's no way to stand up here and say that we are. And um, somebody will come to us and say, you know, there's a village outside of town. It's 20 miles outside of town. And the Americans dropped a 2,000-pound bomb, and they killed 25 civilians. Um, uh, you know, uh, 
a year and a half ago or two years ago, we would have driven out there, and you can usually figure these things out when you get there. We can't do that now. Um, so, uh, yeah, you know, we'll send a couple of, of our Iraqi staff out there, but, um, and they'll come back and say, well, you know, uh, we saw some bodies in the rubble. Um, and that's really, really hard, you know, um, and you've got to try to, you do the best you can, but I mean, you just can't, I mean, we can't report everything that's happening there, and, and it's pretty frustrating. same situation exists for me. On the question of being embedded, um, you know, we are not embedded all the time. Uh, we Im I embed, you know, on and off. It is, I think, been an enormously successful uh, endeavor. No matter whatever the military wants or doesn't want to show you, you're still going to see a huge amount when you're living day in, day out. Um, Dexter and I were both embedded in Fallujah, and I think we were probably embedded more than we ever anticipated. We were, Fox got a tank, Dexter and I got a ground, we were assigned to a foot, to foot patrols. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure if that was intentional or not. <laughs> um, but, I mean, we went in uh, on foot, and it was, very much up close and personal, and there was nothing they could hide from us. Uh, it was, as I say, more embedded than I had ever intended, and I assure you I will never do it again. Uh, the, you know, sometimes the experience is more elucidating than others. Some commanders are, are naturally better than others. Some are more open than others, but it is generally speaking, been pretty good. Now, it doesn't mean to say that you can say, okay, I want to go on that operation and they're going to let you go. There are some operations that are black, they're not going to let you go, you're not going to see it. Uh, so, I mean, you, you, there, you don't have carte blanche to sort of apply and be accepted into you know, every, every movement. But generally speaking, I think we've, we've, we have got a, a pretty good idea. Um, of what, what's worked and what hasn't. Uh, you know, all of our staffs are very small. Um, in addition to the fact that we can't move around a lot, uh, that it's dangerous, that we have to rely on Iraqi staff, that you're not there to ask that follow-up question sometimes because you have to rely on them, that uh, um, our staffs are small. I mean. NPR, at most part, we maybe have one or two correspondents at most a time. Uh, we're running out of people who want to go. It's costing us a fortune yeah. uh, as well. And uh, the fact that, I mean, you know, NPR, we have two armored cars at 75,000 bucks a pop. Can you imagine NPR doing this? I mean, I mean, they have, they have ponied up everything to ensure our security. Uh, but it's, you know, there aren't very many of us. And the line of people waiting to go to Iraq uh, and follow in my footsteps is non-existent. If I could just jump in on the, on the embed thing. Um, you know, my experience has been um, that the, mili the American military is, has been extremely realistic about what the, they face in Iraq. And, um, 
generally when you ask them a question, uh, if it's a pretty straight question, you get a pretty straight answer. And they'll say, we don't know, uh, it's really hard, maybe we could lose. Um, it's the political side that's been, that in the past has been, in the civilian side, that's been for us the most difficult to deal with. Um, and there was often, there's a dichotomy between them and often tension between them, particularly in the first, I mean, Larry could speak to this, but particularly in the first year and a half or so, where they just weren't saying the same thing. There was a, a very political message that was coming from the civilian side, and a, but, a, but a fairly straight one from the military, and that's, that's generally true even now, I think. George? Just to back up a bit, um, lest we seem to be speaking too much in our own defense, um, there was a failure of the press, and that failure was the WMD failure. And, and <laughs> that was, I think, pretty unarguably a, a disgraceful period in American journalism. I mean, we went to war without the Washington press corps asking the hard questions that have to be asked. And that's largely, I think, why the public has been so dissatisfied with the press over Iraq. Um, I perhaps self-servingly draw a sharp line between the pre-war coverage of the Washington press corps and the war coverage of the Baghdad press corps. The former was very much Washington access journalism where it all depends on who your source is and the competition for high level sources is intense and the closeness of the journalist to the source is, is troubling um, where uh, simply getting inside is more important than t scouring the basement you know, of, of the energy department for some obscure official who's actually going to tell you, no, those aluminum tubes are not centrifuges. Um, <laughs> and that is a chronic and kind of structural problem with Washington coverage, and I think it continues to this day. The war coverage has been traditional uh, foreign reporting in wartime with the little spin that we are the target, um, which has <laughs> changed the, the nature of it. So, but because our, our public, our country really, is kind of locked in an eternal, was one of the finalists to replace Scott McClellan as the White House spokesman, Dan, Dan Senor. I mean, his time in Baghdad prepared him extremely well for, for that job. But you're absolutely right that now there's a huge gap between Baghdad and Washington. And when I met, interviewed Ambassador Khalilzad in January, I had the feeling he was trying to use people like me and, and Ann and Dexter to send a message to his Secretary of State and his president. And the message was, your happy talk isn't working. It, no one is fooled anymore. Yeah. He said to me, We're hanging by the, real, the real yeah. problem is the yeah. public has lost faith that our officials know what they're talking about. And the yeah. only way to re regain that faith is by telling them the truth. Why would he tell that to me? I think he was trying to get the message back to Washington. There's now this gap between some fairly realistic and I think pretty able diplomats and generals in Baghdad and a, a continuing fantasy land in, in Washington. But the problem is, of course, I, I completely agree. I mean, I, I think there is a, I mean, it's dramatically different, but there, 
unfortunately dealing with a legacy of three years of terrible mistakes. And I mean, in the, you have to think back. I mean, in the first year and a half, uh, we would ask about prisoner abuse. We, we didn't know how bad it was at Abu Ghraib. We would ask about the killings at checkpoints uh, of Iraqi civilians. We were dismissed and dissed uh, repeatedly. I mean, we would come with our experience on the ground in Iraq and come in to the conference rooms and ask the questions. And these are the legacy, these unfortunately, you know, the unnecessary killing of Iraqis, uh, the the refusal to acknowledge that this was going on, the refusal to, uh, you know, release names of prisoners. I mean, Iraqis, we were con constantly saying, you know, people are in the first year, Iraqis are being detained, they don't know where their families are, uh, you know, are you going to give lists of prisoners? I mean, this is what Saddam did after all. This is what we criticized. And we were, we were confronting this day in and day out on the street, and we're seeing what negative reactions this was creating amongst even those who had supported the U.S. invasion. And they all just looked at us like, you know, we were, you know, they, they didn't know. They were living in the green zone in Never Never Land and had no idea uh, what effect this was really happening. And so unfortunately, Khalilzad can do everything he wants and I think is doing a very good job and is much more open and is a, is a very deft man maneuverer now within the, within the political factions. Uh, but it's a long way into the game. Mm. Did you want to comment? Um, I think uh, before we open it up to questions, I want to turn to, um, well, that's okay because you're going to answer the next question. Because uh, I want to turn to the question of uh, from move from journalism to the basic issue about what's going on and is there a way out. Now, Dexter, you said yesterday in the New York Times, um, uh, <laughs> writing from Baghdad. I filed, I told, I filed it Friday night. Yeah, right, right, right. Uh, he's going back tomorrow, by the way. Um, you said, quote, two constitutions, two elections, and a referendum later. Iraq is reeling toward more chaos, not less, unquote. Um, right. Would you expand on that assessment? I'd like to get others reacting to that assessment. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, well, all I was saying there was, you know, for the past two and a half years, there's been a, there's been a, a very, very vigorous and ambitious attempt to kind of create a democracy there. And the assumption has always been that as you do this and as you write a constitution and as you have an election, and you have political parties and you kind of bring people in, it'll marginalize the extremists and will kind of take the steam out of, out of all that's driving all the violence. And um, I think what we've learned kind of the hard way is that that hasn't really happened. It hasn't happened yet in, in any event. Um, that here we are and there have been two constitutions and two elections and a referendum. And what, what we all see now there on the ground and what's so deeply troubling um, is that the country is starting to come apart and and villages are being ethnically cleansed and neighborhoods are being cleansed and lines are being drawn and uh, I don't know if anybody knows how to turn that around and um, so um, yeah I mean I, that, that's that's all I meant by that particular point yeah your colleagues want to comment on 
It's all getting worse. It's all. But I, can I just add one yes. thing? And maybe this will. I, I think um, when I come home, and um, you know, the country's obviously very polarized, and you get people who say you're not reporting the good news, and you get people who say uh, it's lost. Um, and I think there's a danger in concluding that because it's really, really troubled, and it's really, really, it may, that it's very, it's getting worse there. That the answer is just to pull out. Um, and that means we leave tomorrow. Um, and I think all of us here would, would probably agree that if, if tomorrow the U.S. military and its 140,000 troops pulled out, um, I think you'd probably, I hate to predict, but you'd probably see a bloodbath that was, you know, orders of magnitude greater than anything that we've seen before. And there'd probably be, uh, you know, Iran and Turkey and any number of, you know, and every jihadi coming from the West into the country. Um, and... And so I think that for me anyway, and I, every morning when I get up there, I kind of wonder which way it's going. I think, you know, we can't stay here any longer, but we can't leave either. Um, and, and I don't know what the answer is. George? Yeah, I mean, De Dexter has, has said it. it. It's really hard. We're, we're just in a terrible, terrible position. I remember, Larry, you used the word quagmire uh, two years ago when you testified before, was it the Senate? Um, and, and you almost said, you, you said, get ready for this, but we're in a quagmire. It was a word that had been as carefully avoided as, as civil war is now avoided. Um, we're well into the quagmire, and, and <laughs> I think you almost defined it as what, what, whichever way you move, it will be bad. And that is the situation we're, we're in. And, and you have to think through the, the consequences of our not being there. Um, I, and I have to admit, it's quite personal for me and I think for all of us because we have gotten to know the place and the people and particularly the, the, the few Iraqis that we work with and we know what their fate will be if we're not there and, and their fate will be that they will be the first people killed. And it's extremely hard to face that. It's not the way to make policy, I admit, but it's, for, for me, for us, I think, really colors um, what the story means to us. That we, I would, I'd be willing to admit it has made me perhaps overly optimistic. Simply the desire for the people I've gotten to know and care about not to be facing that has made it harder for me to uh, come face to face with with how bad it is. I think I really am face to face with it now, partly because those people who are my friends there have, have let me know just how awful it is to be living in Baghdad right now. It is an utter nightmare. Um, there's no getting around that. They still say, and if you leave, it will be far worse. What, what do you do with that information? I mean, that's not a policy question. It's, it's a personal question. And it's, it's, uh, I don't really have, I don't have a good answer to it. Larry, would you say something about the situation uh, going forward rather than back? I mean, uh, trade-offs, possible exit strategies. I also would point out, if, as was mentioned earlier, if we went in supposedly because of weapons of mass destruction, which were not found, connections to al-Qaeda, which were not found, the remaining justification is, well, we're going to build a democracy. Well, you're an expert on building democracies, uh, but it's looking... Uh, less likely. Uh, do you want to comment on 
Yeah, I'd say the quest for democracy, that's gone. The question mm -hmm. is, can civil war be averted mm -hmm. in terms of an all-out uh, bloodbath? We're in a, we were in a quagmire two years ago. Now we're in a civil war. Um, the, the, the thing is, now it's a moderate intensity civil conflict by the technical political science definition without question a civil war and a multi-front one with extremely complex, multi-dimensional, fluid lines of engagement. Um, let me, uh, Jim, come to your question um, by prefacing it um, with a point or two. Number one, um, uh, I think it's important to add a twist to what George has said that I th think my three colleagues will agree with and maybe a number of people in this room. It's not just that we have such an emotional, personal stake in this, that we've seen so much invested. Well, I wasn't there very long. You guys have spent a significant chunk of the last few years of your lives deeply immersed in this and taking risks in this and seeing uh, you know, so uh, immediately what we have risked and spent in this. It's not just that, because it was in that sense worse in Vietnam. My God, we lost more than 50,000 Americans in Vietnam. We've got about 2,400 dead in Iraq. The problem is that if the scenario you fear and all three of you unfolds with the fairly rapid pullout of all or most American troops, and I believe strongly it will be, as Tom Friedman said, Lebanon on steroids if, if that happens. This is not going to be Vietnam, where the dominoes fall, tens of thousands of our friends are murdered, and then there's stability. This is going to be the worst national security nightmare for the United States in the post-World War II era, created by George W. Bush and his colleagues in the administration. We're going to have a, a haven for al-Qaeda that's going to be far deeper and more festering than what we already have now, which is serious enough. We're going to have this conflict spilling over to destabilize Jordan, uh, possibly Saudi Arabia, and other friendly states. We're going to have uh, confirmation of what Zawahiri, uh, uh, bin Laden, and um, uh, al-Zarqawi have said that the United States is a paper tiger. Let's move on and uh, carry the war forward. And we've just got to face it. This is a powerful recruiting tool for a deadly and murderous uh, enemy right now in the way that the Viet Cong and then even the North Vietnamese Army were not in the Vietnam War. So we need to keep that in focus. The hard, cold national security stake we have in not seeing this become uh, a totally failed state, an all-out civil war in which America has lost and been crushed and murderous violence just uh, haunts the landscape. Now the problem is, and I, I'd really like to hear from Ann Garrels next, because if you're willing to uh, expound on this, Anne, I think that it's going to be um, not entirely reassuring, but very informative. The problem is that um, the situation is getting worse in many respects. 
in terms, and I'll let Anne talk about her trip down south and what she's seeing in terms of Shiite politics. But the growth of the Shiite militias and of Muqtada al-Sadr and his Mahdi army and his network uh, are, are very profoundly uh, frightening. We have an Islamic state in a virtually Taliban sense, little pieces of Islamic Taliban-style order descending on parts of this country now. More and more radicalization, more and more polarization. And what haunts me as a political scientist, thinking about this analytically, is that I'm just not sure there's an answer at this point. We are taught to believe as Americans that there's an, an, an answer to every problem. Uh, but, you know, any, any alternative policy course that you propose now, I can argue for the utter unworkability of. Where does that leave us, Jim? Uh, it leaves me feeling that our best course now is to try to internationalize the diplomacy of this, bring in the European Union uh, as our partners, bring in the United Nations as our partners, bring in the neighboring Arab states at an appropriate point to lean on the different parties, try and mobilize every form of international leverage we have for the moment we are at now in Iraq, which is a constitutional moment still because there is not consensus on the Constitution that was adopted in October. There is a requirement as a result of the deal that Khalilzad deftly negotiated four days before the referendum for a Constitutional Review Commission to review this within four months of Parliament sitting, which I think it's already done, but it's right. <laughs> apparently that clock hasn't started ticking yet. In any case, I really think we're just about out of institutional bullets here. This is our last chance. And if we don't get very significant amendment of the Constitution on federalism, on oil, on some of the big issues that still divide the major political forces, I really don't know what's left at this point to turn the situation around. Anne? Uh, there is no question that, I mean, Iraq was, was, had already gone down the Islamic road long before the U.S. invaded. Uh, and that was not recognized, or people didn't want to recognize it. People were far more conservative, seeking refuge in religion. That was true across the region, but it had very much happened in Iraq. Uh, the administration listened to the upper middle class exiles who grew up in a different era in Iraq in the 60s uh, and had remembered a very different country. And many of them were indeed shocked at what they found when they went back 30 years later. Uh, I've, I've, and what I have seen increasingly over three years is, is an increasingly people as the institutions of the country have failed uh, and disappeared, have gone back to their tribal roots, have found even more comfort in religion. And Muqtada Sadr, who was dismissed uh, initially by the U.S. as nothing more than a thug, uh, unimportant, uh, is, I think, according to Iraqis I've spoken to, uh, certainly down in the Shiite south, uh, will prevail if there are local elections, as they're supposed to be in, in December, he, uh, in the fall. 
he has played the game brilliantly. Uh, and I mean, he did it, uh, he has sort of stayed out, he is untainted, others have come into government in the ensuing three years after the US came in. They have proven themselves corrupt, venal. Uh, Sadr is still, he's portrayed himself as a nationalist. Uh, he, he is whatever you want him to be on a given day. And, uh, and manipulated the elections uh, brilliantly and the, and the United Iraqi Alliance, the Shiite coalition, uh, so much uh, so that, I mean, he ran on their slate and, and managed to maneuver a third of the seats. And then on top of that, ran independent candidates. And so he's, he's come up as the kingmaker uh, within the alliance, much to everybody's shock. Uh, I was talking to uh, the, the Vice President uh, Adil Abdul Mahdi, uh, Mahdi and uh, he was at the meeting uh, four months ago when they were trying to decide who would be the, the Shiite candidate for Prime Minister. And uh, lo and behold, Muqtada Sadr brilliantly outmaneuvered everybody else. He counted heads in the best democratic way. <laughs> and the others just kind of missed the boat. And every time Sadr real, Sadr's people realized they weren't going to get the, the, uh, the right number of votes, they postponed the vote. And the day when they realized they had the one vote they needed to get Joffrey in, they called the vote, they had it, and, and uh, Mehdi admitted that uh, they had just simply been outmaneuvered. But Annie, I mean, wouldn't you also say that while playing the game in Baghdad brilliantly, on the ground, the Mahdi army has exerted tremendous control over Basra, over Amara, over, if, if, if they could have, Najaf and Karbala, but Sistani essentially kept them. Be, but they're by, back but, in Najaf. By, but how have they done it? I mean, from day one, by killing, Oh, they're absolute thugs. Oh, I mean, Muqtada al-Sadr right. struck the first blow of the Shiite political process on April 10, 2003, by having Ayatollah al-Khoi killed in Najaf, a moderate Ayatollah who had come back from London. And from that day on, every Shiite knew that to go up against the Mahdi army meant you were going to get killed. Basra is now divided neighborhood by neighborhood into little militias and gangs, each one with its own little mullah who is running the show. It is a kind of mafia city now. And it's hard to speak about democratic politics of any kind when that, those are the conditions on the ground. Iraqis have never been able, even with all these elections, to be political beings, to do what we take for granted in civil society because it's just so violent. That's right. I mean, the, the point being that, I mean, while we've been talking largely about secular violence between Sunni and Shia, and, and certainly in, in the Baghdad and the greater Baghdad area, I mean, down in the south where it's predominantly Shiite, it is Shiites against Shiites. Uh, and, I mean, I mean, and, and Sadr, Sadr is not wonderful, but the others aren't any better. I mean, they're, they've got their militias, they're killing people. I mean, it's, it's unfortunately devolved into, into a very, very messy situation. Uh, the only reason I was suggesting that Sadr has sort of 
played it a little bit more cleverly, waited outside the game, so he looks, he's not as tainted as the others by, um, by power because no. he's been outside. Uh, and I, you know, if he does well, it will, it, his guys are real thugs. They're very, very, very scary. To imagine how, number one, Ambassador Khalilzad, bless his heart, is going to pull off this goal of keeping any sectarian figures from controlling the Ministry of Interior or the Ministry of Defense. Number two, uh, next to them, it seems the ministry that Sadr wants most, please comment, is the Ministry of Education. Now, imagine, you know, the Taliban of Iraq being in control of the Ministry of Education, uh, and you'll see why I uh, am not very pessimistic, uh, I'm not very optimistic about the future of uh, democracy in, in Iraq. And I don't see how that can be prevented. I mean, the man's got a, the, co the, 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 the political force has, the black-shirted political force has, a big slice of parliament, a key swing element of power. So how you're going to keep them out of conquering some key ministries and using them to impose, you know, their vision of Islam, I just don't know. Well, and their vision of Islam, I mean, well, I mean, is not so different than the other members of the yeah. alliance, actually. Um, I mean, there, there are differences in, in, in some areas, but... Um, I think what we have to understand is that there, it, is, it is a far more conservative society now than it was before. Dexter? No, I mean, I, I think it just points up the larger problem. I mean, you know, when, when the American troops went in in 2003, we all kind of assumed that when you take down tyranny, uh, what replaces it is, is freedom. And, in fact, what happened was, was anarchy. And... and the re really the principal failure of the of the American forces there and of the British forces is that they've never been able to provide security in any way in any neighborhood so that people can stand up to people like this and it's it's always they'll be killed and there's nothing that can be done about it and it's that way today and I think it's probably I mean personally I think it's probably too late I mean if you suddenly tried to put 500,000 American troops in there I, I think it would just get worse rather than better but and whether it ever would have worked I don't know but the but the when you see stuff like, you know, Sauter's militia running around town and nobody's doing anything about it, um, it's been that way for three years now. And, and there's never been, there's never was any security or enough security on the ground for people to kind of act in a political way. Did, did you want to comment, George? Maybe we should yes. bring the audience. Yeah, yeah I'd like to open it up to yeah. questions, except just to point out that when I mentioned three arguments for going in in the first place, weapons of mass destruction, connection to 9-11, building democracy. There was actually a fourth, which was getting rid of tyranny. And now the prognosis that you're sharing gets rid of that one, too, because it's no good to get rid of tyranny if somebody solder-like ends up there, black shirts, uh, thugs. It'll just replace one with another. So it's a very pessimistic scenario. I think we'd like to invite people to come up, maybe if they can get into a, into a line and, and uh, State your questions, and we'll see what kinds of answers we can get. Thank you. On this side? This is so depressing. <laughs> <laughs> can, can, can I just, I'm sorry, but I, I can't accept that 
Arabs are incapable of democracy. I think, in a way, one of the worst things yeah. to come out of <laughs> one of the worst things to come out of this war is a widespread sense that it's hopeless over there, and there's nothing you can do about it, and that's the way they are. And I fear that we're going to devolve into a period of Pat Buchanan-like foreign policy thinking as a reaction to the um, theological. Wilsonianism of George W. Bush. Um, Iraqis have not been given a chance, I would say, to show whether or not they're capable of democracy. For the reason that Dexter said, they were never given the slightest cover so that you could stand up at a meeting and speak your mind and know that you weren't going to walk out and be killed from day one. There was never a chance for Iraqis to show whether or not they could do it. And that was our fault, our Great, great. Also, it false. just would t it takes a long time. You know, I mean, the idea that you know that you could have a constitution in a matter of three months. Uh, we didn't do it. Uh, I mean, it, it it's just not going to happen on our timetable. Sorry to interrupt. Depressing. That's obvious thing. No. Just two quick things. One, if the whole country could hear this, what was going on tonight, they would get the truth as seen from your eyes, and they would see what we're up against. I, you know, it's it's too bad that we can't put this on national television. But number two, it will be on the World Wide Web, though. By the way, <laughs> number two, my thought before I came here tonight was that, okay, we've got to get the troops out, even though people say that if they all, if they all leave tomorrow, that there will be anarchy, and I'm saying there's anarchy now. And you've just shot that all to smithereens by saying that we can't do that. And now, I don't know where to go from there, because my, my thought was to get these, uh, because we're the targets, I mean, we're one of the, we're the target yeah. there. Yeah. So if we all left, everybody, every last troop, save American lives, no more, no more, uh, save Iraqi lives, you know, well, maybe not that, but I don't know what, I mean, I don't know how to think anymore because that was <laughs> my, my I, I would, I would say the, the agony and confusion you are, conveying is the beginning of wisdom. <laughs> and if, if nothing else, what this country needs is a good grown-up conversation about this war, which we have not had. Thank you. Um, thank you. I, I had one, one comment about your democracy uh, conundrum. I, I think there's been a lot of looking back um, but we sort of go back to the beginning of this war. I, I think the question hasn't been asked, could we have achieved the end that we sought um, with, in another way? Uh, could we have given real diplomacy a chance? And you know, Larry, your idea called for a coalition, of an international coalition now. Uh, we had the chance to do that four years ago. Uh, we took a different route. Um, so so that's, that's one thought is, and, and as we're doing this post-mortem ex examination of that. But the real question I have is, um, 
you talk about bravery of, of uh, journalists and um, uh, soldiers there. Uh, uh, the bravest people I see there are people who are willing to volunteer to be in the Iraqi security forces. Um, you know, we, we are constantly hearing about um, mass killings at these recruitment centers. Um, and it's clearly a, a major part of our strategy because, of course, one day we will leave, whether we pull out tomorrow or five years from now or ten years from now, we will leave. Um, tell us really what is, are, are there people being trained? Um, you know, what is the status of security forces? And yeah. Um, you know, is there, is there hope? Yeah, I, I can just say, I mean, I, if, if there is one sort of, if there is hope, uh, it's probably that, which is they're building a gigantic army and an enormous police force. Um, and, you know, if it works, um, then they fight and the Americans get to leave. And um, I think we're probably a long way away from that. But um, but you do see progress. There was a... There was a there was a battle the other day. This happens every day. Uh, insurgents attacked a police station, which, you know, again, happens, as you know, every day. Um, but what was different this time was, I noticed, was that the Iraqi military counterattacked um, and actually went after the insurgents. And that never happened before. Was they, the army? It was the army. And they, they'd cut and run, you know. Um, and so maybe, you know, uh, it's not a new dawn, but um, uh, if there is a bit of hope, that's it. Yes, um, Rice and Rumsfeld were both in Baghdad this past week, last week. And I really got confused over what was happening because Rumsfeld seemed to say, well, it's not my problem anymore in terms of rebuilding Iraq. And Rice is saying, more or less things are going okay. So could you, <laughs> could you explain to me what's happening between those two vis-a-vis -vis Baghdad and Iraq? Uh. <laughs> She was your friend, Larry. Why don't you take it? <laughs> Please try. Uh, you know, I, I think that any of my colleagues could answer this better than I can. Um, uh, I do believe that uh, Secretary Rice is somewhat more flexible and pragmatic than the Secretary of Defense who I, I truly think is just profoundly out of touch with reality uh, and living in his own world. And, um, uh, you know, this is a historic development to have uh, six very senior, dedicated, uh, retired generals. Uh, and I think my colleagues will probably affirm what I'm saying from whatever experience they have. This is the tip of the iceberg in terms of senior and more junior military dis uh, 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 serving officer disaffection with the arrogance and uh, miscalculations, uh, bad decision-making, isolation of the senior civilian Pentagon leadership beginning with the Secretary of Defense. And um, there's been no accountability uh, it's really, it's shocking, and I think it's going to go down in uh, the modern American uh, governmental history as, as just one of the uh, most glaring examples of a failure of accountability in the face of palpable uh, uh, 
ineffectiveness and uh, bad judgment, you know, in our, in our modern history. Is it the history. failure of Congress? Huh? Is it the failure of Congress? What can they do? We don't have a parliamentary system. Are they supposed to vote a parliamentary vote of no confidence? Obviously, the Republicans in Congress are not going to uh, completely uh, abandon the president by passing some kind of resolution that would have no standing anyway. I mean, we have to say it. It's a failure of the president of the United States who continues to cling to this man. I, I, had, uh, I had dinner recently with a retired general who's a Rumsfeld defender. There are a few. Um, and he said to me, the Secretary of Defense intellectually tuned out after the fall of Baghdad. And in Baghdad last week, he was doodling while Rice was talking. Rumsfeld has not wanted to deal with Iraq for the past three years. For him, it's a massive distraction from what he wants to be doing, which is transforming the military into the 21st century high-tech fighting force. Iraq is, you know, in the title of a book on insurgency, the sling and the stone. It's really primitive stuff. It's homemade bombs. This is not what interests the Secretary of Defense. He would rather not be in Iraq. And the fact that his agency has had the lead, not just in the military side, but on the political side and the reconstruction, and the man at the top of that is bored. It's quite an amazing state of affairs. Well, uh, my question has changed a few times in the course of the evening. Uh, <laughs> uh, first, I want to say that the only one of you whose work I regularly hear is Ann Gerald's, and you are a hero to me, and I'm sure the other two of you are also. Um, and where my question has arrived at this point, after hearing Larry Diamond's commentary on democracy building, is this. Uh, you made, uh, George Packer made a distinction between the Washington reporting before the war and the war reporting in Iraq, and I agree with that distinction. I think that uh, we're facing a really serious challenge to the survival of democracy in this country, and I want to ask you that however and whenever the U.S. gets out of Iraq in the next couple of years, whether you same heroic, courageous journalists and more that you're going to rev up are going to speak truth to power here in this country and not relent as the same forces that brought us Iraq um, put all the voting machines in place that were made by Diebold and that have no paper trail. I think it's not conspiracy theory, but that and many other developments, as you know well, are you know, are you going to bring that courage home to us? Please do. It's a plea. Does anybody want to comment on it? Well, I don't know when I'm coming home, but but <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, I think we've, I think the press has learned its lesson. I mean, I I, I think I think our newspaper has learned its lesson um, about. At least I, I like to think it has um, about when somebody you know hands you a tip and says this is really complicated stuff. You got to trust me on this one, but um, I'll connect the dots for you. Um, that um, you got to be really careful before you before you print that as gospel. Um, as a as a news junkie, I want to first thank all of the panelists. Um, 
we've learned so much from Ann Garrels, Dexter Filkins, George Packer, and Larry Diamond. We really have learned a great deal about this war, so I don't want the media, all of the media, to get a bad rap. But listening to you all tonight and the pessimism you have expressed, um, I, I, I wonder what good you think it would do to keep American soldiers and American bases in Iraq for one more, more, one more day, to let one more 19-year-old get his head blown off, when, um, when none of you can tell us how the American army in Iraq is protecting the security of the Iraqis. The New York Times reported the other day that even the Iraqis don't think they are protecting their security. Well, I mean, I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I think I would just pose the alternative, which is um, if, every, if you want to support a pullout, um, I think it's incumbent upon you to consider what that means. Um, and I think it would probably, we may all be wrong, but um, all the signs point to really much, much more terrible violence than, than we've already had. I mean, Kurdistan would, I mean, the place, I think one has to sort of look down the road and go, okay, um, the Sunni Shia violence will escalate dramatically, Shiite, Shiite violence, the Kurds will probably break apart, uh, could possibly anyway, and then you have all the surrounding countries with their vested interest in this. I mean, as, as was mentioned earlier on, this isn't, as simple as Vietnam. So what you're saying is that the presence of American troops is preventing peace. Yes, I think. I mean, it. it there never were as enough. It's it not is. enough to provide yeah. enough security, but it's enough to provide at least a lid uh, on what could blow. I think that's how. I mean, it, it's not ideal. <laughs> uh, I, I need to say something because I, I think Rochelle Marshall has asked the most important question that's been asked tonight, <clears throat> which is uh, what do we do now and why should any more Americans uh, die if it's as hopeless as the picture that's been painted? I just want to say two things briefly. If there really is no hope, if we can imagine no better outcome uh, at any point in the future, you know, if we keep our forces there, any longer, then it's hard to argue for the logic of it. I think that needs to be acknowledged, even if the consequences are, are horrific. I have not come to that point analytically. If I do, I'll say we need to get out uh, in a fairly spirited fashion uh, because we cannot accomplish anything by staying any longer. I still think there is a moment for diplomacy to build some political consensus that can begin to generate a stake among a critical mass of different Iraqi political parties, ethnic groups, and sectarian groups, a stake in a more peaceful political future as opposed to a descent into violence. It's a constitutional moment, and the political context for a turn toward uh, more moderation or a turn, a deeper descent into civil war that's going to be shaped by what happens on the big political issues of the structure of the country, the distribution of oil, the control of security, and so on over the next uh, a few months. So this is why 
I'm not prepared to give up hope yet. But Larry, one thing, why on earth would the EU or the UN want to pull our chestnuts out of the fire? Oh, I think the, I can answer that very simply. Um, I think, uh, I can't speak for them, but I, so I'm speaking speculatively now. I think throughout the United Nations building, battered and humiliated though it has been by this administration, um, there is a sober recognition that, um, uh, of, of what we've been saying tonight, that we're nearing the abyss, uh, and that this will be a, a tremendous calamity for Larry, the Larry, Larry, the, security. The UN couldn't fight in Bosnia, and it didn't. I'm not talking um, about fighting. I'm talking about diplomacy. But, I mean, there's no peace to keep. I mean, it's, it's uh, it, you know, is the UN going to walk into the middle of that? I, I can't imagine. What's the diplomacy that, if you're the, that they can... You're the Swedish well, okay, army that you're going to For example, gonna right now, there's, a, there's been a plan on the table for like three years, and I didn't like it from the beginning because Iraqis didn't like it, which was carve the country up into three. Uh, Sunni, Shiites, and Kurds. Uh, regions so autonomous, they're practically independent states, except that there's a very weak central government in Baghdad which conducts foreign policy and which divides up oil revenue so that the Sunnis out in the desert of Anbar province get their, get their 20%. You have to buy them off. I thought it was a bad idea when Les Gelb and Peter Galbraith proposed it because it wasn't in the heads of Iraqis. Iraqis talked as if they were one country. Iraqis are no longer talking as if they're one country. Dexter had an amazing quote yesterday in which a Shiite in that refugee camp said, the Sunnis hate us, it's genetic, they're always going to hate us. In, in Iraq in January, I heard a Shiite butcher say, if only our religious leaders would give a fatwa every last Sunni would be killed in this country. Uh, we would have no more Sunnis. You didn't hear them saying that before. That is the rhetoric of sort of pre-genocidal mm -hmm. thinking. And it may well be we've reached a point in the minds of Iraqis where they're ready to say we're no longer Iraqis, at least not for as many, many years. And here's the political deal which we will all sign on to in order not to go down into the abyss together. That's totally against the administration's policy. It would mean a complete rejection of everything that the administration has been trying to do. It may well be the best course right now, but we can't even talk about it because the administration doesn't want to hear it and because the public is somehow not engaged in, in, thinking, in thinking about it. And all I'm saying here is that without much broader international mediation involving the UN, the EU, the Arab League, Maybe the Iranians, if we can find a piece of the regime, I know that sounds very wild. But without something like that, we're not going to get any deal at all, in my opinion. And the reason why the UN and the EU will come in, is, and the Arab League as well, to negotiations, not peacekeeping, not troops on the ground, just partnership in, in brokering and mediation, is because they realize their goose is going to be cooked as well if this place blows. Who's next? Ah, yes. By the way, the partition is in Biden and Gelb uh, proposed that in the Times today. Yeah. That, that's another bloodbath, but we can talk about it. <laughs> um, I have an observation and I have a question. And the question is, I'm puzzled by the fact that the administration is building a permanent base in Baghdad that I read in the newspapers and I see the pictures, uh, billions of dollars, uh, huge uh, base, permanent base, and 
they're saying on the one hand that they're going to bring our troops home on the other hand it looks like they want to stay there permanently because they're sinking billions of dollars into this permanent base so that's very troubling to me and very puzzling and maybe you have some ideas or or information about why this is so um, the other observation I have is that it seems to me from your observations of this administration that they are psychologically impaired. If they are psychologically impaired from Bush Cheney's behavior psychologically and also we have uh, Rumsfeld who lately hasn't been dealing with reality very well. Does that mean that the American people have anything to say about whether they can remain in office if they are impaired psychologically to run the government? I think the American people need to say something about this to their Congress, to the media, and begin to take steps towards possible impeachment because these people do not know what they're doing. Does anybody want to comment on that? We're beginning to. It's not a question. It's not, okay. It's, um, I think we, uh, the, the, your point is made, but I don't, I think we have to, we're running out of time, so I think I'm going to want <coughs> okay. other Could comments. Comment on the uh, unless somebody wants to answer. On the permanent base. Oh, on the permanent? base, yes. Well, it's the worst of both worlds as I see it. Um, we have, on the one hand, I think a a policy of withdrawal that 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 is that if they can just get a good week. Um, <laughs> seriously, I mean the the insurgents are really like making Antietam. it hard yeah. for them. But if they could get a good week, if the unity government could suddenly have one week of of reduced attacks, I think the Bush administration would say it's working. We're uh, we're we're going to start pulling out. What we will leave behind uh, will be three or four so-called enduring fobs, which are these mega bases you're talking about, which will be irrelevant to the Iraqi civil war that we will leave behind. They might as well be in Kansas. Um, but they will inflame Iraqi and Arab opinion because they will seem to be signs that we have permanent designs on Iraq. We will be there to provoke without having the slightest bit of control. Um, so it is, again, a kind of misguided policy as I see it. Thank you. Uh, yes, uh, there are three points I would like to make, but before I make them, I'd sort of say that I am one of those Iraqis that Anne was talking about, who used to live in Iraq in, in the 60s, but has been American for many, many years, okay? So with that preface, uh, the point I want to make is really very difficult to understand another country's culture. I've been in this country 40 years. I'm married to a British woman, and I still don't understand the British or the Americans. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so I'm really disappointed in how little. I, I, first, I appreciate what you reporters have, how well that you have reported, and, and how honestly you have conveyed what's happening in Iraq. With that preface, I honestly believe that you still do not believe, do not understand the Iraqis or the Iraqi culture. Uh, it, the, I, so, so given that and given 
all the cost to the Iraqis as well as to the Americans, both people and money, the best answer from my perspective is for America to leave Iraq as soon as possible. Okay? I, I honestly believe the Iraqis are smart enough to find a solution for themselves. There will be some trouble at the beginning, but, but sooner or later, Iraqis are smart enough. They don't want to kill each other. There will be a few people who will be hurt a little bit, but, but you guys, you don't understand the Iraqis. How can you help them? We really can't. Don't, we don't understand them. We, we, I hope you're I right. You're right. Wait a minute, yeah. wait a minute. There's I one more point right. I want to make. We're blaming the Bush for everything that's happened to Iraq. Bush was getting 80% public acceptance for going to Iraq when a lie. I, I participated at the, at the uh, State Department's uh, discussions on Iraq, and I knew we were a lie. And we told the military and, and the State Department they were a lie, and they knew that. So, so okay, so re the truth is we don't understand the Iraqis, and we, we cannot help them. So the sooner we get out, the better, from my perspective. <laughs> Who wants to comment on this? Well, there was no, it was, maybe we should just take another question. Okay. Uh, yeah, my questions were pretty much preempted by George Packer and the other question, but I have a question <laughs> for Larry Diamond. Uh, where's George Schultz in all of this? I saw his, uh, I, no, I saw his interview in the Wall Street Journal Andy the other day. Answer. He's been a very strong supporter of the administration. Yeah. To some extent, a mentor of Gandhi. I don't really know. Do, have you had any conversations with him about what ought to happen? Because uh, he's a guy who has the ear of a lot of people, whether you like him or not. Um, all I'm going to say in response to your uh, question, uh, because um, First of all, he does, I'm sure, talk to the administration, listen to them, and advise them, um, is that I have a great admiration for George Schultz. Um, he is, I think, been a, a very honest and um, effective uh, a servant of um, uh, the American interest for a long time. I think he was an, a truly outstanding Secretary of State, and I say that as a lifelong Democrat whereas he served a Republican president and a pretty conservative one. I disagree with him on Iraq, um, and I disagree with many of my colleagues at Hoover on Iraq, by no means all of them, by the way. It's important to stress that. Uh, and I disagree with those who think things on balance are going well, and the president on balance in difficult circumstances has handled this well, but I'm not going to question their patriotism, and I'm not for those individuals who I think have arrived at this view honestly, I'm not going to uh, cease uh, having the respect I do for them. Yeah, but what's, the, what's he saying about what? You'll have to ask him. <laughs> You're not going to tell me. It seems. There's one over here. Sure. We'll, we'll, we'll get in line. We, we'd like to. There's a couple in Well, okay. So who's next? It seems to me the underlying basis for the war is really oil and the benefits to American corporations such as Halliburton, which I think has reportedly got $17 billion out of it. Uh, would you comment on this because it seems to me that we get no discussion of oil, and yet it's 
uh, driving force, uh, which isn't really commented on. I know they're pumping less oil um, from, from Iraq now than they were before the war. And the contracts for the, they're pumping, as you said, they're pumping less oil now than they were before the war. And in addition to that, uh, until the constitutional issue is resolved and a permanent government is established, no future, no con long-term contracts um, have been offered uh, and uh, or negotiated. And the situation uh, is pretty dire in terms of the security. The Americans put security in the hands of so-called oil battalions who were responsible for the, the sort of the pipeline area and the ref Beji refinery and the, and the pipelines and the oil fields in the north uh, between Baghdad and, and Kurdistan. Uh, and they basically put them in the hands of uh, real shysters who have proceeded to attack the oil fields. And the, uh, it, it was a disaster. And, but they didn't dare touch these guys because they were Sunnis who they wanted to bring into the political process. So while they knew perfectly well they were plundering the oil pipelines and, and destroying much of the, the situation in the uh, north of Baghdad, they waited, they had to wait until the December elections, when indeed this man was elected to parliament, um, uh, and, and then put an arrest warrant, then had the Iraqis put an arrest warrant out for him. But I mean, it's been a, it's a, it's a disastrous situation for. But I think the, the story you've just told, um, oil is a very tempting explanation for all things in this war. I think it simply is inadequate to explain so many aspects of the war. The easiest way to get our hands on Iraqi oil, rather than take over the country, would have been to drop sanctions, which was the French and Russian approach to getting their hands on Iraqi oil. If Iraqi oil is why we're in Iraq, why aren't we protecting the Iraqi oil pipelines? Because Donald Rumsfeld doesn't want to use American troops to do it. We won't protect the infrastructure, which is why there's a fuel crisis in the world's second largest uh, exporter of oil. So it just as an analysis of the war, to me, it, it doesn't hold up. Yes, Halliburton has done extremely well, and one way in which they've done well is by um, abandoning the projects that they were paid to do. And that's true of every contractor in Iraq, pretty much. That's not the reason for the war. That's one of the consequences of the war. Thank you. Uh, I'm very disturbed by uh, what I hear about our servicemen defending America in Iraq because Bush's uh, claim is now that he is protecting the United States from terrorists in Iraq, which is to me the most ludicrous thing I heard in a long time because he created the terrorism in Iraq because our illegal military invasion of the country has created a terrible mess in the entire Middle East. And now they're probably going to bomb Iran. It's totally insane. They don't know how to negotiate. We don't have any diplomats. When you, when you say there, there may be diplomatic solutions, where are our diplomats? Cheney, Halliburton? We don't have diplomats, we only have guns. And we destroyed so much. It was on European television. The bombing that Rumsfeld called shock and awe. 
They, do, they killed hundreds of thousands of civilians. That's nonsense. Yeah, that's not true. That's utter nonsense. Come on, let, let's, let's at least try to be serious about our facts. That's just nonsense. Well, thousands, tens of thousands. Not tens of thousands. No, it's wrong. Because friends of mine Annie, you were there. Did you see, the were there tens of thousands down. of Iraqis dying during the bombing of Baghdad? I mean, as you, as you can well appreciate from what I've said earlier, I'm not a fan of, of the war. But I was in Baghdad during the bombing, and I saw it. And it was frighteningly accurate. And it gives the illusion that war is easy. Um, but so easy from the air, and frankly, not very, not with a lot of damage. I watched a cruise missile go past my my window, turn left, mm. and go into the third floor of the communications building mm. and gut it beautifully. Not a soul was killed, and that happened night after night after night. But it's still uh, I would happening. say most of the. I would say, sir, a lot of the the killing that did happen and that I saw was by Iraqi missiles. Um, that were used as, I mean, these huge weapons that were used as anti-aircraft um, and that were misused. So, so um, but the, the sad thing about an air war is that it makes it look so simple because it is so surgical. And in fact, is not that, in this case, the Americans did not wish to create a huge amount of collateral damage. They knew they were coming into Baghdad. It was not a repeat of 91. But uh, and so, so it was, but it's so messy on the ground. When our you come soldiers in. have no contact with the civilians. If they, you know, they just kick in doors and arrest suspects. And I was in Korea, and we were not allowed to have any contact with the civilian population either. And there must be a reason for that because the American military just hate Arabs. Um, yeah, well. <laughs> I, okay. It's uh, not a question. Excuse me. I'd like to bring it, the discussion back a little bit to something we talked about earlier with the dissatisfaction with the, of the American people with, uh, with the press and, and the reporting and that kind of thing. I just wondered if you could comment on uh, is a significant part of that the sort of consistent war on the media by this coming somewhat from the, from the, the White House? Yeah, I, I think it's – we all now are, are well aware that there is a huge right-wing uh, corporate media that is always on message, and it's amazing how quickly the talking points arrive in people's email inboxes so that within minutes it's on TV. It's an incredibly well-orchestrated and, and disciplined attack on the media. Dexter, you know, was in Fallujah with mortars raining down on his head, downloading emails from readers who were claiming that he was all wrong about what was happening in Fallujah because they saw something else on Fox. 
But I would, <laughs> I would add that there's a lot of educated Americans who could read any day of the week in the, in the New York Times or occasionally in the New Yorker magazine and could hear on NPR that our soldiers don't just kick indoors. They do other things too. But for some reason, those educated Americans don't really want to know that. And so I, I would say that while Fox is perhaps the greater problem, there also seems to be a resistance to certain news from Iraq among people of other political persuasions. There is one little interesting thing I would just point out is that the only audio um, that the military can download is Fox. It's true. They, they used to be able to downstream everything, um, but now they ask me for transcripts because they can't, they can't, they can only download Fox audio. Isn't that amazing? It's incredible. That's that's a topic for another a another thing. evening. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes. I can only jump in more. As foreign correspondents, you guys have a very unique perspective, and I'm interested to hear what you think because I'm, I'm really concerned about the future of U.S. foreign policy. And you're visiting our campus, so you probably don't know, but the genocide in Darfur has received a lot of attention among students. And with us here, you know, in this discussion, it's very easy to cheer when we say negative things about Bush and get ready for these elections and hope that a new administration will do better, but what worries me is that there will be almost an aftershock where future U.S. foreign policy will be afraid to, say, intervene in Darfur because we're going to be afraid of getting stuck with what happened in Iraq again, or we may not even have the force because we're still dealing with Iraq. And, I mean, as with a unique perspective looking back at the U.S., what do you guys think our foreign policy can do or should do? Well, it, I have to say it's, it's just it's interesting to hear people talk about Darfur because um, what they're asking for often is a unilateral American military intervention um, in, a, in a foreign country that's not asking for it, um, which is exactly what we have right now. Um, and this is an easy one to talk, Darfur is easy to talk about because we're not doing anything. Um, and so we can sort of, you know, we can, we can kick the administration wherever they want. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, we could be having a panel discussion about Darfur in three or four years if what went wrong there. I'd sort of get, I mean, and, and I mean, this is just personal, that we sort of got 9-11 for a while. I mean, we didn't ask good questions going into Iraq. We all failed. We failed as journalists. I think we all failed as citizens. Um, and I hope we're out of, I hope we're out of that phase where, I mean, but somehow we really blew it all together. And we've just got to ask better questions in the future. I mean, I'm encouraged that you're asking that question because I worry about the exact same thing. And, and I fear, as I said earlier, we will have the Pat Buchananization of, of America. We are going to close the doors to build walls with our southern neighbor and to say, let them worry about that problem. That's none of our business. I think that's not, to me, uh, a particularly cheering foreign policy. I do think Iraq is, is going to make that more likely. And the alternative is for people like you to to speak up, so I'm glad you did. Thank Jim? You. Yeah? Uh, just one yeah. Uh, response, uh, partly to Dexter. <clears throat> I, I think that actually people are not calling, well, some emotionally may have this impulse, but they're really not calling for unilateral American intervention uh, <clears throat> and are for uh, what about 15 policy specialists, including me, 
have just called for in a letter to President Bush and Secretary Rice <clears throat> is uh, working through uh, NATO with our allies uh, and at the UN to get a, a more substantial bridging force in there uh, <clears throat> uh, if necessary NATO, although I realize that's got its problems, until we can get a, a UN uh, force. At a minimum, we could have done some time ago, could still do now, so much more to support uh, the African Union force in terms of logistics, in terms of finance, in terms of training, in terms of arms. Uh, ultimately, I do think there is the beginning of a certain degree of wisdom here that we can't do this on our own and have it be sustainable. Uh, and that one of the challenges now is that we need to build up everywhere in the world <clears throat> much more substantial local and regional peace implementation forces. The world is tapped out in terms of the deployment of them. Uh, and finally, I'll say, again, having uh, uh, made the point about what my own politics are, uh, that uh, Deputy Secretary of State Zelik has been working this uh, in a way uh, that I think has been, you know, somewhat creative and energetic here. And whatever our um, delaying and um, underplaying of this tragedy, uh, you know, it was worse with Rwanda in the Clinton administration. And I need, think we retrospectively <clears throat> need to be politically honest about that. Okay. I am honored to be between two students following one and leading in, I'd like to compliment the student in the red shirt on bringing the Darfur in issue in because it brought out some of the most interesting discussion uh, of a very depressing evening. And with that <laughs> in mind, I do have a solution that nobody has brought up. It's one of the premises of brainstorming, which I used to lecture on. So vis visualize Rumsfeld and Rice greeting Saddam Hussein at the prison door, saying, here, take it back. <laughs> I think we can go right on to the next question. Right, right. <laughs> Ironically enough, that might actually relate to my question. Um, Professor Diamond, you spoke earlier about uh, how it seems irrelevant to speak about democracy building elements now, or efforts now, because it seems more that we should be focusing all our efforts on averting a further descent into a civil war. I think it's a very true observation. Um, I, tonight, you've all spoken very much about the current situation in Iraq, and I'm going to ask you, uh, from what you know and from all your experience of many years, to make a prediction. And I, I know it's just speculation, but I'd, I'd like to hear what it is. Knowing all that you do, um, and considering, like, what what exactly is the, in your view, the most likely outcome of what's going to happen in Iraq in terms of what the government's going to be? Is it going to be? Is it even? Do you think it's even likely that there will be some kind of democratic constitutional government that's formed? Will some international diplomatic effort actually succeed? Will this does this administration actually have the kind of you know diplomatic capital or soft power around the world to pull that off? Or considering how Machiavellian Machiavellian the politics seems to be in Iraq, considering Bashar al-Assad, will the result just be a strongman? I mean, or will it be something completely different? I'd just like to hear your views on that. To get a strongman at this point, there is no strongman who, who can do it because he'll be rejected by one group or another. I think what we're headed for is uh, cities in which neighborhoods are barricaded, in which local militias are the only 
security force in which uh, Baghdad, is, as Dexter has written, is, is essentially divided along the Tigris between a Shiite eastern Baghdad and a Sunni western Baghdad. Uh, Kirkuk is going to be the scene, uh, it seems, of a fight because Muqtada's guys are not going to let it go to the Kurds without a fight. Mosul um, will be divided. It already is really between Sunni west and Kurdish east. Basra is going to be a hundred um, Shiite militias, each controlling a neighborhood. Um, there may be a few cities in which life is tenable, like Najaf, because it's under really under the control at this point of uh, the religious leaders. Um, Hilla seems, for some reason, to have escaped the worst. It's it's a mystery. I don't quite understand it. But it, it, I'm, I'm not painting a. And then Kurdistan is essentially going to say, "We tried." We're going to go our own way, um, and then we'll see what what Turkey does. Um, and we will be less and less relevant. That's I mean that's the direction. That's the trend right now. And unless there's a radical change in policy, or simply a radical re just an effort that we we really haven't made. I mean this is the amazing thing. We we, we took over a country and we weren't serious uh, about trying to rebuild it. Um, I think that's the, that's the flow of events, and, and in, in a couple of years, um, none of us will be there. That'll be our, you know, personal, the end of our personal sagas in Iraq. But Thank you. Hmm. Well, if you're not there, we may not hear the story. <laughs> I think one of the areas where we have had the least understanding, certainly in Washington, and I think in part because of the way of the press, and that is the nature of and the thinking behind the insurgency. I don't think practically anybody here at all understands it. That's my first right. point. My yeah. second point is I know the insurgency isn't one thing. I know it's a mixture of things, but I can't talk about it in any other way. It doesn't require many people to run an insurgency. It is certainly marvelously well-financed, and it has no stake in a stable Iraq. And therefore, no matter what we do, and we certainly don't have any <laughs> understanding or means to counter the insurgency, uh, I. It makes me extremely pessimistic because uh, regardless of whether we're there or not, it is to their benefit to maintain uh, instability and to bring about civil war. And I think they can probably do it, and that's very devastating. Uh, why don't we get the last two uh, comments and then any closing remarks. Uh, we'll deal with them all at once, if that's okay, because we're running out of time. There was a Thank question you. raised earlier. Somebody was hoping that some of the information and the comments that you made have made tonight would somehow spread out to the nation. It, it smacks me as a little bit of paranoia in the sense that if we picked up the New Yorker or the New York Times or NPR, listen to NPR, we would get that information. So I, my question has two parts. One, is there anything that any of the reporters here has said tonight that you have not said either on the air or in your writings in the magazine or newspaper? And secondly, have you ever been prevented or squelched 
from a higher up within your respective new news organization to stop saying something that might be controversial in regards to the war? Uh, I can, I mean, I've, I've said more or less in print everything. I, I mean, I actually said it on Sunday. Um, but no, no one's ever told me not to write anything. Same here. Yeah, same here. Last question. Uh, thank, thank you. Um, an Iranian exile living in this country told me several years ago that this administration's plan was from the outset to go into Iran, but that they would never, ever make that known. They would never say so publicly. And I'd also heard that the bases were being constructed along a route that would bring oil from the Caspian Sea. And I'm just wondering um, if these are relevant statements. Anybody want to comment on any of the last questions? Then we'll stop. I'm not privy to whatever conspiracies are being hatched in Washington. <laughs> Can I say something about yeah. the insurgency, uh, and then this will lead to my final remark. Um, this is an extremely uh, complicated uh, phenomenon with many different pieces and factions to it. You hear counts of more than two dozen, more than three dozen, more than 70, I mean, different groups uh, waging insurgent violence. And that's before you get to the sectarian violence in reaction to the largely Sunni-based insurgency. I think it is still the case that um, substantial elements of this insurgency are fighting for what they see to be nationalistic reasons. Without question, it has substantially mutated this violence in Iraq, as Stephen Biddle says in, the, in Foreign Affairs, into a communal civil war. But there's still this nationalist element to it. And um, therefore, I, I strongly agree with what George said earlier, that the um, U.S. pursuit of what seems to be permanent, certainly long-term or enduring, military bases in Iraq is really, uh, to use perhaps uh, an unfortunate metaphor, pouring oil on the fire. And um, I think what has been needed since early in the post-war era and what is needed urgently at this moment is an American strategy for dealing with the insurgency that has many different pieces to it, one of which is an open, unambiguous, declarative statement that we are not seeking and will not seek permanent military bases in Iraq, that when we are done uh, and, and the Iraqi military can uh, and security forces can sustain the burden of securing the country, we're pulling out our forces entirely. <clears throat> there is still scope to talk to pieces of this insurgency which have been seeking for two and a half years to negotiate directly with the United States with international mediators present. The final thing I want to say is um, to echo uh, the great economist um, Albert Hirschman who wrote, wrote about uh, having a bias for hope. We're in really deep trouble here now. We've heard a, um, a very grim uh, analysis tonight, frankly, pretty much convergent from four different individuals. <clears throat> but I think that um, there is my own personal view, being the most distant from this situation right now of any of the four people who've spoken on this panel, 
is that there's still a window of hope to try and get some stability. We have to have realism in terms of what can be achieved, but we have to have a sense of the gravity of what is at stake for Iraqis, for the region, and for the United States of America. And while there's still that window of hope and opportunity for dialogue and some crafting of a minimum degree of constitutional consensus and political power-sharing consensus, I want to try to seize it. Well, I don't know if we should end on that slightly optimistic yeah. note, but <laughs> yes. thank you very much, and thank you to our panelists. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.